I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Okay, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Saltwater Coffee Podcast for another Random Musings. This is number five, I believe, for the week of roughly July 4th, 2021. So I'm sorry, it's been a while since I've done one of these. I've had a lot of work, we ended off the school year, and I've been doing some summer school stuff, so it's, uh, I've been pretty busy. But anyway, uh, let's get into it. So today's gonna be a little bit more, uh, or this post, I should say, is gonna be a little bit more, uh, scatterbrained. I only have just kind of the most basic of notes written down here, but hopefully we'll have, uh, some interesting things to discuss. So first of all, have people forgotten, like, what crosswalks are for? Like, what's the purpose of them? And more importantly, how to use them? I only ask because I nearly hit a person, like, the other day while driving down a highway. So I was coming up to this stoplight on a divided highway, you know, like with the concrete barriers, the Jersey barriers, or K-rails, as they're also called, in between them. So I'm coming up to this stoplight, and kind of out of the corner of my left eye, I see this guy running across the opposite lanes, he jumps the concrete divider, he stumbles for a little bit, but then, you know, picks himself up again, and crosses the four lanes on my side of the highway right in front of me. And there's like a box truck in the lane um, to my to my left that's also kind of near me. And so, yeah, he and I, or the box truck and I, like honk our horns at this moron. And we were close enough to actually need to apply the brakes. Otherwise, I, I certainly would have hit this guy. So, yeah. Now, like I said, we're approaching the stoplight, which couldn't have been more than like 200 meters away, you know, ahead of us. And at that stoplight are these things called pedestrian crosswalks. And drivers are obliged to give way to peds when they're using them. So I don't know. I mean, for whatever reason, this guy couldn't be bothered to go the extra couple hundred meters down the road, use the crosswalk. No, he had to, he had to run across four lanes, jump the divider, and run across the four lanes right in front of me and the truck next to me. So, yeah. And further on that, like, it looked like his right arm was broken because it was, like, in a cast or something. It's like, oh, my God, you idiots. Ugh. Yeah. So, hey, you know, there's a, I guess there's a Darwin Award, you know, somewhere for that guy. But whatever. So anyway, in other recent news, uh, in Oregon anyway, we had, or in the Pacific Northwest in general, we had this thing called a heat wave or the heat dome, right? Yeah, Portland reached like 116 degrees on uh, June 28th, I think it was, Monday. Yeah, Salem was like 118 or whatever. Yeah, it was crazy hot. Yeah, the numbers are still kind of trickling in, but apparently this, this heat wave killed some like 90 plus people. Yeah, last I saw it was like up to 93 or whatever. And that's just in Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, of course, there was that crazy heat wave. It actually lasted for about three days from like Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And we, we were breaking records, triple digits throughout those days in, in terms of the high. Yeah, it was like 108 or something, 109 or whatever on Saturday, 112 or 113 on Sunday, then 116 on Monday or whatever. Yeah, it was breaking triple digits, breaking the record, the all-time high record. So yeah. So anyway, I, I was, uh, you know, doing some summer school and like, yeah, we don't want to step outside today. We're not going to do anything outside. We're just going to stay inside. And of course, the uh, school I'm working at in their infinite wisdoms 
like they come over the intercom and they're like, yeah, we're shutting down the AC in the building. Why? Why are you doing this? I know there's not many, you know, people, not many staff or students in here, but still it's like, oh, so the building gets even more hot than it already is. Yeah, it was like 93 or something degrees at 9 a.m. Yeah, it was pretty warm outside already at like early, fairly early in the morning. It was like 70 something at like six, so crazy hot on Monday. Then at the end of the day, when I'm going home, I'm like, oh, I don't want to leave. You know, it's 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 kind of warm inside the building, but it's still a heck of a lot cooler than it is outside, you know? So like, I, I, I'm like, okay, well, I walk out the door, just walking across the parking lot, stepping out into the sun, and it just like hits you like a wall. I'm like, oh my God, it is so friggin' hot. Holy crap, you know? So... I guess on the upshot of all things that it was a fairly dry heat as it usually is in Oregon. So yeah, I can generally deal with dry heat, but I don't like hot weather and humidity, which is kind of funny because I lived in Japan for years and all oh, the summers there just get, get pretty hot and they get very muggy and humid and that just sucks all the energy out of you. So, but still, I mean, even a dry heat, 116 degree heat is pretty hot. Yeah, really, real, real heavy beating. So, yeah. <laughs> Needless to say, my like 20 minute commute home was pretty miserable. <laughs> Even like I was blasting the AC, but still, it's like, oh, yeah, crazy, crazy hot. Yeah. So, there's that. What a lovely, uh, what a lovely little heat wave, three day heat wave we, heat wave we had. And not only that, the heat wave has moved east. And so uh, like Eastern Oregon, Idaho, Colorado and stuff, they're still experiencing really high triple digit temperatures. So ugh, yeah. And compounding on the fact that the West, the Western United States is undergoing something of a drought. And so, yeah. <laughs> Oh, the joy is that. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeedy. And because of this heat, or partially in relation to this heat, it creates very dry conditions and all that. We're anticipating a really, really ugly fire season this summer. Yeah, like worse. Like last year was pretty bad. Uh, this year, we're anticipating it to be even worse. So, ugh. Wildfires are probably going to be galore. Crazy. I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if we, the whole like Willamette Valley of Oregon goes under a whole like big like blanket of smoke and ash for like however long. Yeah. Ugh. And you just can't breathe. Mm-hmm. So in light of these rather warm conditions, I guess I should I should note right now it's it's cooled off quite a bit. You know, we're doing highs of like in the 80s. Yeah, it's still a bit warmer than it normally would be, but yeah, I mean, what a difference though, like 10 degrees makes. Like if you go out like say one day the high is like 70 something, 72 degrees. That's you know reasonably comfortable room temperature, right? And say that the next day, the temperature jumps up 10 degrees to like 82 degrees. And you walk outside and you're like, ooh, there's quite a difference. Like, you know, it usually gets hottest right around like 4 or 5 p.m., you know, in the afternoon. So walk outside at those times and, you know, from day to day and see the difference in temperature. And there's quite a difference in 10 degree with a 10 degree difference. Yeah, it's it's a noticeable difference. And you don't think about it. It's like, oh, it's only 10 degrees, but <laughs> it, it makes a difference. Yeah. So anyway, I guess I should also say after that day where it peaked at 116 in Portland, the next day was like 95 or 93 degrees. So yeah, you know, a little over a 20 degree difference. Yeah. So like here in Oregon, we consider 90 degrees to be pretty warm, pretty hot day. But man, that 93 degree day on Tuesday after that heat wave, oh, it felt nice. It's like, oh my God, that's so much cooler. So yeah. So if you'll feel a difference at 10 degrees, 
Imagine a 20 degree difference. Ooh, felt so nice. Ah. I went out in the morning at like 6 a.m. for a run. 63 degree weather or 65 degrees or whatever. Ah, positively like euphoric. Like, oh my God, I was like to die for. But anyway, <laughs> crazy. So anyway, um, uh, where was I? Oh yes, um, so yes, in light of these dry conditions and the recent heat wave and all that and, and the drought, things like that, they have effectively banned fireworks on the 4th of July. Now, not every city or town or municipality or whatever has necessarily banned fireworks, but they've, many have cautioned against their use. Yeah, but, but some cities have outright banned both the use of fireworks and the sale of fireworks. So, but yeah, so I mean, you know, try not to set the state on fire come 4th of July or a little bit later. That would be kind of nice. You know, we don't need any huge fires right now because we're already kind of hot. <laughs> anyway, so that's a little bit about the lovely heat wave. How lovely it was. Oh, man. Yeah, pretty hot. So anyway, uh, in other news, kind of changing subjects here, I have also I'm also changing jobs. So uh, starting this uh, basically um, next school year, September, uh, I will be uh, going on to a different job. I will be starting teaching at a middle school. Yep, to be a social studies and English teacher. Yes, indeedy. So that should be kind of interesting. Now I guess some um, some. Uh, some some context here uh, is, is warranted. So um, let's see. I've I've done a fair amount of like substitute teaching, you know, and various other kinds of teaching and all that. Um, so I have experience in, in a variety of subjects and things like that. But um, see, at least in the United States, the way it works for teachers is that uh, for secondary teachers like middle school and high school. Uh, you have endorsements, like you have your teaching license, yes, so, which qualifies you as a teacher, but you, with that teaching license comes endorsements. And these endorsements are like the subjects that you can teach, you know? So currently I'm endorsed for social studies. I'm a history teacher. It's what I do, right? So yes. So uh, now I mentioned that I'm also going to be starting as an English teacher as well, okay? Well, I don't have an English, uh, you know, an English language arts endorsement. How am I going to teach that? Well, there's a couple ways to do that. Um, but essentially, all these endorsements require you to take a subject matter test to show that you have some, you know, simple expertise or whatever, whatever you want to call it in that subject. And then you can either in your schooling, go and take like the pedagogy courses for that subject, you know, so like, these are like the social studies pedagogy courses, how to teach, be a social studies teacher and how to teach the subject. And there's ones for English and biology and chemistry and science, you know, mathematics and so on and so forth, you know, so yeah, but um, the school that I've been hired by that I'm talking to, uh, the way they're going to do it, the way they're going to help me get my English endorsement, which in a way is kind of a lot more streamlined, is that I'll still have to take the subject matter test. That's just a requirement. Um, but they will observe me for like 60 hours, I think it is. It's like 60 hours of observation from another English teacher. And then essentially they kind of, you know, grade me and sign me off. And it's like, yes, you can teach English and, whatever, and they'll get me my endorsement. So that would be kind of nice. So yay, they'll help me uh, get, another, uh, get another endorsement, which does make me a little bit more marketable, a little bit more competitive for other jobs. Of course, you know, I can only apply to jobs that I have endorsements for. So yeah, so I like, you know, say I currently have a social studies job, but often social studies is mixed with English, right? You have a social studies English teacher. And so I can technically apply for those jobs as well. Yeah. But I can't go and apply for like a, an algebra job or a chemistry or physics job, you know, cause I don't, I'm not endorsed in that, in any of those things. So it would be pointless for me to try to apply to those jobs, if that makes sense. But anyway, yeah. Um, 
So those two endorsements, social studies and English, were my original intention when I went into, when I applied to grad school for my teaching program. So I said like, oh, you know, you can select up to two endorsements. I said, okay, I want to be, I want to get endorsed in social studies and English. But I think the way it works is because um, I had more like undergraduate credits in like history uh, compared to like English or literature, then they said, okay, well, we'll only let you get your social studies endorsement. So you don't have the, the required undergrad credits in English or similar subjects, you know, it's like, ugh, you know, and it's like, well, what is that? You know, I mean, I, I taught English as a second language, you know, in Japan for five years. Doesn't that count? They're like, nope. It's like, All right, fine then. So I ended up, you know, getting my master's and getting my teaching license with just a social studies endorsement. So, but thankfully, um, yeah, I'll be starting work at a middle school and uh, they'll be helping me out, you know? So yes, it is possible to get further endorsements. Yes. And there's a couple ways to do it, at least in Oregon. So yeah. So yeah, that'll be good. Um, it'll definitely be tough indeed. Um, yeah, having done some teaching at middle school and, you know, I guess my my middle school teaching experience versus my high school teaching experience is is far less. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, some sub substitute jobs I've taken at middle schools, it kind of turns into a zoo. But indeed, um, middle school is really interesting, though. It's like because you're dealing with like uh, preteens and tweens, you know, and early teenagers. So like you got the like the sixth graders who are still kind of kids for all intents and purposes. You know, they're still really young and, you know, it, it's like they're almost like, you know, they're just fresh out of grade school. And so like, oh, you know, so you really have to do a lot of handholding, you know, and then in the middle, you got the seventh graders, then the eighth graders who like kind of try and act all adult and tough and all that, you know, <laughs> yeah. But it's so funny, you know, I mean, just imagine yourself, look back on those days when you were in middle school, when you were like, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, yeah, and you thought you knew it all and stuff, and you are kind of in that in-between period between being kind of an older teenager, you know, so, yeah, but at, at the same time, you had very little concept of, like, the world and experience and anything like that, you know, you don't, you've only been on this planet for, you know, 12 to 14 years, so... <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty funny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, you know, kind of the same thing can be said for high schoolers, you know, but except high schoolers give you, you know, high schoolers arguably have a little bit more perspective, a little bit more maturity. So there's a maturity thing. And there's, you know, a, an experience thing. And yeah, it's a bit different. So yeah, middle school is just, it's just a really interesting time. You know, I mean, some for some teachers, it's miserable. And some teachers do really, really well. I mean, middle schoolers have a ton of energy. Some people say like middle school is like the most horrible teaching experience they've ever had. And others are like, oh, it's great. I love the energy, you know, so who knows? And I suspect a lot of that also has to do a lot with, you know, the classes, what the students as well, right? So, you know, just thinking, you know, I'm going to be starting off here, you know, at a new school and at a middle school and teaching sixth and eighth graders. So I think, uh, oof, I'm anticipating the first six years to one year of this at the very least, uh, to be just, uh, absolutely brutal. Yeah. In fact, and you know, not again, cause I talk a lot with other teachers. They're like, oh yeah. It's like, bro, those first years are going to be just absolutely brutal. But if you make it through those years, you're, <laughs> you'll be pretty good to go. Yeah. And um, middle school experience, middle school teaching experience is also looked upon really favorably because you develop really good, really strong classroom management skills. Yeah, because <laughs> you're dealing with a bunch of little, you know, little 
you're herding cats all day, essentially, <laughs> you know, so if you want to like eventually go and teach high school and it's like, oh, I taught middle school for so many years and I herded the, the cats and the, the crazy banshees and all that all day long, you know, so, oh, good. You got good classroom management skills. Yeah, you'll be a good high school teacher. So <laughs> whereas I've kind of been the opposite. I spent a lot of time teaching high school and, you know, not so much time teaching middle school, but I'm definitely going to be uh, exercising my classroom management muscles here. <laughs> anyway, so there's that. I guess one thing I should also note is, um, you know, just because you do well in a particular subject, you know, oh, you know a lot about that subject or whatever, that doesn't really equate to being a good teacher. That doesn't mean you can teach it well, right? So, and I guess I can kind of get into this this later. You know, what's the difference between being an expert on something and being a teacher, you know, and teaching it well? I would argue that there's two different, those are two different things. You could be really knowledgeable on a subject, but not know how to convey that knowledge to other people, you know, or not know how to help people learn that subject. Whereas you could be a really great teacher. You can be really great at conveying knowledge and helping people learn about some subject, but maybe not like some world-renowned expert on it. So, but that's, uh, that's something we can get into later. So I think, uh, you know, I'm confident I can easily handle the, the social studies aspect, but, um, I'm definitely going to need a lot of support, a lot of mentorship from the other English teachers to help me out as I grow in teaching that subject. Yeah. But then again, you know, again, like I said, like in middle school, anyway, a lot of, you know, social, a lot of teachers teach those two subjects, social studies and English, you know, because, you know, history, social studies is a reading subject. You do a lot of reading and as well, you do a lot of writing. Same thing in English. You do a lot of reading and a lot of writing. The difference is, you know, is kind of the subject matter, right? The content, you know, so English, you can deal more with fiction, less with history. Of course, you can also deal with his history itself. You know, it's just, yeah. Um, I heard one teacher, one English teacher say like, oh, History teachers, you've got all the topics, whereas English teachers have all like the, the, the writing skills, the reading and writing skills, you know. But obviously, you know, my point is that the two subjects really complement each other, right? There's a lot of reading in English, a lot of reading and writing in English. There's a lot of reading and writing and research in history. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, they might as well be the same thing. It's just there's slight differences in the content that they focus on, right? So I'm not teaching about Geoffrey Chaucer and Shakespeare in history class. You know, Shakespeare gets a little blurb in history. You know, oh yeah, you know, Elizabethan England and blah, 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 Shakespeare, yada, yada, yada. And so, yeah. Whereas you'll spend like an entire unit going over Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet or whatever in English class. So, <laughs> yeah. But for all intents and purposes, they both involve a lot of reading. They both involve a lot of writing. Who'd have thunk, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, indeed. We'll have to see. Indeed. Kind of have to see how it goes. Um, yeah. I've, I'm sure there'll be no shortage of students who are really awesome writers and who have really great reading skills and no shortage of students who are on the opposite end of that spectrum, who can barely write a sentence and who can barely read a paragraph to save their lives. Yes. And I've seen it. I've seen it both in middle school and in high school. Yeah. So I'm definitely going to ha have to take a long, hard look at what my standards are, what standards I'm having to teach the curriculum and how I'm going to form my lesson plans and objectives to meet those things, you know? Like, obviously, I'm, I'm not going to expect a middle schooler, like a, a, a seventh grader or whatever, to be able to produce, like, a 10-page paper, you know, with proper organization and grammar and syntax and vocabulary and spelling and yada yada. No. <laughs> yeah. So, these aren't college students, you know, or grad students or whatever. They're middle schoolers. So, yeah. 
And indeed, uh, one of my professors when I was in grad school was also a middle school English teacher. And he said, like, don't expect middle schoolers to know how to, like, glue things on. You know, like, okay, we're going to, like, create our little notebook, our little personal journal, you know. So you want you to decorate, spend today's class decorating your journal or something. Yeah. And so you hand them, like, scissors and glue and paper and, you know, cut up a bunch of magazines and whatnot and so on and whatnot, you know. Don't expect middle schoolers to know how to like glue things on. As weird as that seems, you know, or do simple stuff like that, you know, like you have to like demonstrate them, you know, I do, we do, you do, that sort of thing, you know. So, okay, take the strip of paper, flip it over, apply the glue like this, put it right here, you know, glue it right here on your notebook and things like that, you know, right, see that line at the top left-hand corner of your paper, write your name there, now go down, do this, do that, you know, so yeah. I mean, definitely middle schoolers certainly require a lot more handholding, you know, and don't expect them to, you know, be able to do so many things that we take for granted, you know? Yeah. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so uh, there's that. I might kind of circle back to that a little bit later. But uh, in line line with changing jobs, I might be looking for a, uh, uh, since I'll be changing schools as well, I might be looking for another place, uh, a new, like, uh, a new home closer to work because currently as it stands my commute's going to be around 30 minutes which is generally no problem but i mean it would be nice to shorten that commute you know down to like it if i can shave off like five ten minutes from that commute make it 25 or 20 minutes that would be good yeah obviously the shorter the better <laughs> you know but yeah it would be nice to uh maybe find a place that's a little bit closer to work so yeah i think in the coming uh, months i'll be doing some shopping shopping for a new home mm-hmm Anyway, there's that. So getting on to the uh, kind of the last topic that I want to discuss here is um, avoiding arguments on social media. So I do this basically, and this is something that I've been working on, kind of disciplining myself on, you know, just don't get caught up in the flame war or in any argument on social media at that, you know, just avoid the arguments on social media and kind of intentionally keeping a lot of my social media presence relatively small so to speak. Like it's not worth getting getting wrapped around the axle over all these things on social media. You know, simply for the point, it's like you're wasting energy. It's like, so what? So someone said some mean comment, called you fat, said something racist, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. It's like, ugh, it's just, just whatever, you know, it's social media. You know, you, 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 at this point, given how prevalent it is in our lives, you expect people to be civil and intelligent and, uh, you know, um, accepting and tolerant on social media (laughs) where have you been you know of course people post things without thinking yeah they're hiding behind the anonymity of their screens and their keyboards or their you know their phones or whatever not to say that there aren't interesting and good things that come out of social media and that there are no benefits to social media but just avoid the argument people you know and going further you know it's so easy for people on social media to decontextualize and twist things out of proportion you know so before you know it that tweet or whatever that you posted 10 years ago comes back and bites you in the butt you know like how many times we see it you know like 
someone's running for office or, you know, uh, you know, some celebrity or whatever. It's like, you know, they become the new hot A-list star, you know, in movies or whatever. And like, oh, people start digging up like the dirt on them. It's like, oh, look at this post you made on whatever, you know, on some social media 10 years ago. Oh, that that's not okay. That's pretty racist or that's pretty sexist or uh, we don't like what you posted X number of years ago. Yeah. Yep. Cancel you. Yep. So it's like, what? It's like, you know, or I made this joke, you know, oh, this comedian made this joke years ago and back then it may have been appropriate, but nowadays it's no bueno, right? So it's like, well, you can't predict the future, right? So again, it's just illustrative of the fact that, you know, people decontextualize and dig up dirt on you and it comes back to bite you in the butt, you know? So it's like, what? So just the safest way to do that is to just not post much at all, you know? Even if a lot of the stuff you post can seemingly be innocuous, there's no really knowing exactly what our social mores and values and customs and things like that are going to be, you know, 10, 20 years down the road when they're going to start digging up dirt on you or who knows, right? Um, not just your fans or subscribers or followers, but employers and so on and whatnot, you know? And I've had this conversation with uh, some students as well, you know? Yeah, it's easy enough to say like, you know, be careful what you post or, you know, think about it before you hit send or before you hit post on that on that social media thingy or whatever. It's like, eh. but of course, you know, you can, you can say that as much as you want. Oh, think before you post is what I'm saying. Yada, yada, nice. And then, yeah, uh, but you know, that, that comes with the territory, right? It comes with the territory of social media. So, and it seems like, you know, for anyone in the public arena these days, one slip up and your career is basically over, right? So, cancel culture. Hello. Hi. uh, As stupid as that is, though, but, you know. And it gets me thinking, you know, what I really want, what I think would be interesting is having some kind of app, some kind of like software that simulates or illustrates the the dangers of posting dumb crap on social media. You know what I mean? So, I'm thinking like, you know, you, uh, it like, it like analyzes your, your words. So like you, you punch in something equivalent to like a Twitter post or whatever, a tweet, you know, and this app like breaks it down, your work breaks down your words and then say like it illustrates a map showing like how fast your post is proliferating based on how many followers you have. Like, okay, oh, this person liked it here and over here, this person, these five people liked your post and these five people didn't like your post and these 10 people really loved your post and yada, 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 you know, what are the chances of your post going viral and so on and so forth, you know? So it like shows on a map, like who's liking it and where. Again, this is all like just like, like a simulation, you know, it's not real, but it's just like something that simulate how fast some of your posts spread, right? And furthermore, um, in addition, like this app can like break down, take apart and analyze the language you use, like the words, and it'll like, it'll flag certain like hot words, you know, like a republic, like a, like a, like political parties, like you say, Democrat or Republican or socialism or communism or um, celebrity or, you know, it's like highlighting. It's 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 programmed to like highlight certain phrases or certain words or things like that and kind of uh, assign a certain value to like, oh, these terms or these these posts or these phrases get blown out of proportion and these ones kind of fall into the ether somewhere, you know? And so, yeah. And maybe like it goes further and kind of twists those words, you know? Oh, you use this word. Oh, well, we'll just switch it around or change it slightly, you know? So it it has a slightly different connotation, you know? So I think an app that simulates kind of the proliferation 
the virality, so to speak, and the twisting of social media posts would be a very interesting uh, demonstration of how, why, you know, especially young people should be really careful about what they post, you know, so things like that. And so it got me thinking, you know, I'm, I currently I started working on a game, like designing a game uh, for all intents and purposes, a war game, because I've been doing a lot of research on war game design and things like that. So I've been working on this game that simulates the uh, quote unquote vagaries of social media i.e. like the odds of you becoming a viral, your post going viral, you know, and I call I call the game going viral. And I'll, I'll probably write a post on this on the blog explaining what this game is and how I'm designing it. But you know, what are the odds of you becoming the next Instagram influencer or YouTube star or whatever, you know, and the point of the game is to examine like the extreme, extremely low probability of you becoming like famous on social media, you know, oh, I'm going to become the next YouTube star and I'm going to like retire at like 20 because I'm making a bazillion, bajillion dollars on YouTube or whatever. Oh, my Instagram feed is just exploding and I'm, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard kids say like, oh, I'm going to become the next next social media, whatever, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. So the point of my game going viral is to simply demonstrate that yeah, don't count on it. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's just a simple pen and paper and dice game, you know? So like, for example, like if you take two dice, right, two six sided dice, and roll them, you know, um, the theoretical probability is that you're most likely, the most likely outcome is going to be some variation of seven of the number seven. So like, you know, six and one or five and two or you know, so on and so forth, you know, whereas there's very low probabilities of you like, um, rolling, you know, two ones, in other words, a two or a 12, you know, two sixes. Yeah. So adapting that probability to the game, you know, say like, you know, um, in order for your post, your social media post to go viral, you need to roll a, and like, um, let's see, you need to roll like a 10 or higher, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, or some number or higher or some number or lower. So you can just place that probability at the very ends of that kind of bell curve, right? Of that probability curve. So yeah. So, okay. So, or, you know, or just add in more dice, you know, say you roll three dice or four dice, you know, the, the combinations, you know, you know, go up, you know, like exponentially. So yeah, it's like, okay, but the whole point, you know, is just to demonstrate um, the very low probability of you making a career, you know, and being able to live off of your uh, ad revenue or whatever from social media, even if you're doing it full time, like eight hours a day or more. And, you know, and that's all you do. And you drop out of school and you know, yeah, good luck. Yeah. So, oh, but I watch this YouTube star, this this YouTube gaming channel. Yeah. But think about how many different people, how, how many millions or billions of people have YouTube channels, how many different YouTube channels out there and what percentage of those people make enough money through like ad revenue and sponsorships and they're selling their merch and all that. How many of those people make enough money to actually like, you know, pay the rent and put gas in the tank and turn the lights on and turn the water on and off and, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. I read one article, uh, at least in 2018, um, or a 2018 article, I should say, that said to become like the top, um, your your chances of becoming, of gaining, like entering to like the top three and a half percent of YouTubers out there, say like, you know, PewDiePie level, you know, currently anyway, 
the odds of you becoming one of the top YouTubers out there, uh, yeah, it's pretty low. You have a better chance of literally winning the lottery. So you might as well just start buying lottery tickets, Powerball, Moneyball, whatever. Yeah, you have a better chance of winning the lottery, you know, winning a million, however many millions of dollars on, on the lottery than you do of becoming the next big, huge YouTube star, or at least becoming one of the top percent of YouTube stars out there. <laughs> Not happening, people. You're better off sticking in, sticking with a nine to five job. So yeah, that's uh, that's my thoughts on that. So I'm kind of just developing a very simple game like that. Yeah. Now, um, you know, the, the game I'm making is not super complex. Again, uh, you know, reading, you know, war game uh, theorists, you might say, you know, like Peter Perla, James Dunnigan, uh, you know, those types of people. Um, they say, you know, keep it simple, right? And particularly, uh, I guess uh, I'll kind of finish off here with this basic discussion on war game design. Not that I'm some expert or anything, but... Again, you know, I've just been looking a lot at how war games are designed, how games are designed in general. And um, it's just really interesting on kind of the simplicity of the models that they use, right? And what I mean by this is like, um, like even video games, like computer games, your, your Xbox, your PlayStation, your Nintendo games, your PC games, you know, and your board games and things like that. The, the mathematical models that they use are usually really, really simple. Yeah, they're not like super complex algorithms that you need like a PhD in mathematics to understand or anything like that. Um, oftentimes it just comes down to a dice throw, right? So like, you know, the, uh, you, you fire a weapon or whatever in the game and the probability of it hitting the target, you know, based on these various modifying factors, you know, oh, you need to roll a, a five or higher or something like that. You know, you know, you have like a 50% chance of, you know, da, 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 so you need to roll like a six or higher or something like, you know, whatever. Yeah. So it's simple probability like that, that underscores a lot of game mechanics. Again, it's not complex. Yeah. And similarly, like the artificial intelligence, the logic of artificial intelligence is furthermore pretty simple from my understanding. Now, there are many ways to do it, but like a lot of it kind of operates off of an if then kind of logic like you know if the if the player or if this happens in the game then that's going to happen you know if the player does this then the ai is going to do that you know and maybe there's other kind of randomizers in there you know if the player does this then the computer will either do this that or the other you know roll a die see which one it's going to choose yeah and again you can add in simple modifiers and things like that but you know and randomizers and so on and whatnot but you know, like the logic of the AI, the mathematical models that many games use are not terribly complex. Yeah, it's a lot of it is just a dice rule <laughs> and simple if then probability, uh, if then logic. So, yeah. And um, Peter Perla in his book, The Art of Wargaming, basically says that um, like war games themselves, uh, they're not very good at uh, at creating quantitative data. That is in terms of outputs. Yeah. So like, um, you know, the, the numerical quantitative data is best used in war games as an input rather than an output. So don't expect a war game to be some hyper, super realistic model of, you know, um, certain, you know, mathematical characteristics. You know, a lot of war games use pretty simple mathematical models, as I just mentioned you know, but that may not necessarily be demonstrative of reality, which which kind of sounds weird, but, but think about this for a second. So like if the war game uses a fairly simple mathematical model, 
then you're going to get simple uh, mathematical results from it. So instead of expecting a war game to be hyper realistic in terms of its results, um, you should use the data more as an input into the game as opposed to taking the outputs from the game as like gospel, as like the gospel truth, right? And furthermore, Peter Perla, to emphasize the point, distinguishes between like war games, uh, operations research, and... Um, there was one other thing that's escaping my mind right now. But anyway, like, you know, something about like wargaming is not operations research, which involves like a lot of really arcane mathematics and stuff like that. So if you if you want to like do like a real like in-depth like mathematical analysis, you know, systems analysis, operations analysis or, or, or whatever, you know, you want operations research or systems research or systems analysis. And that requires very specialized training and a lot of math and stuff like that. You know, the idea that you could break down like everything, you know, from human decisions to logistics to so on, everything in the world down to mathematical models, that's operations research, operations analysis. That's not war games. That's really good at crunching the numbers and coming out with the mathematical outputs, the data. War games, on the other hand, you should not be looking at the data it generates. What you are looking for in war games in terms of the outputs are what decisions the players make. Yeah, not necessarily the quantitative data, not necessarily the numbers, if that makes sense. So, you know, uh, uh, Peter Perla tries to make it clear that like, you know, if you want lots of data and numbers to crunch, you want systems analysis. If you want an understanding of how players make decisions and how we're looking at those decisions and why they were made, you want war games. Now, yes, there are some, there's some overlap between the two, um, you know, in various, um, in various shades, you know, of overlap, you could say, but, um, yeah, war games are not systems analysis and systems analysis is not war games. Yes. You can combine elements in various forms, but yeah, if you're using a war game to generate a lot of numerical data, you, you're going to want to rethink of why you're using it. Yeah. <laughs> Similarly, if you're using systems analysis to generate a lot of understanding of human decisions, you might want to use a war game instead. So there's that. So yeah, anyway, that's, um, that's my idea. So, you know, the, the mathematical model that I'm using for my game going viral is just very simple dice probability. Yeah. Just roll like four dice and, you know, roll a couple of dice and calculate the simple probabilities and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it's not complex. Again, I'm trying to keep it simple as James Dunnigan has said, keep it simple, you know? Yeah. So is it the most realistic repre mathematical representation of actual like social media and those algorithms that YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and so on uses? No, not at all. It's just a very simple probability of a dice roll. But I'm trying to demonstrate the objective of my game is I'm trying to demonstrate the very low probability you have of becoming the next social media star. Yeah. So anyway, there's that. So that's really all I have to talk about right now. Um, I've got other things, of course, but I think I'll save them for next time. Yeah. So that being said, uh, I will see everyone later. So cheerio.